I'm Maggie Brereton. And I'm Ina Kerr. Welcome to Deal With It, our podcast series on business and deals. For this episode, we host Emily Horton, journalist of financial news Dow Jones. We discuss the 2020 business perspectives. Here we go. So here today we have Emily Horton with us uh, as a special guest to our podcast. Thanks, Emily, for joining us. You're uh, really happy to have you here with us. Uh, be great if you could introduce yourself and tell <laughs> yes, us a little bit what we do, what do you do. Yeah, uh, so I'm a journalist for Financial News. I'm currently an online reporter, um, and that means I cover a little bit of everything. So from asset management to regulation to, the, to investment banking to cryptocurrency. It's amazing how much you learn about an industry when you are immersed within it. So hopefully I'll be able to give you some interesting insights and also uh, forward-looking predictions. One of the things I was told is if you can be a financial journalist, you can be any type of journalist because you the it, it's so technical and there's a lot of... It's basically one of the hardest forms of journalism. Uh, because of the te- te- the level of technicality around the subject matter. So I've also been told if you want to be a political journalist, having a background within finance is incredibly useful as well because of the regulatory um, kind of insight that you gain um, and also the, the working out how everything works. Okay, where should we start? How about the recession or a potential recession? or the economic slowdown that we have, I suppose, been in for the past couple of years and might really see an uptick. It's a good place to start, a little depressing place to start. Sorry. <laughs> um, I think nowadays to define when we actually are in recession and not in recession, I know there's the mathematical model, uh, but I think out on the street it feels quite different. I think for me, the recession is is part of it, but it also goes hand in hand with the level of uncertainty that we're still going to suffer from in uh, 2020. So if we think we've got here locally Brexit, although uh, that will happen, or the first part of that will happen at the end of January, with the announcement of a potential no-deal Brexit, I think that brings the uncertainty back in to play. And then, of course, we have the US presidential elections, as well next year and I suggest that that will also create uh, some uncertainty in respect of the announcements that will be made, the policies that will be pushed, the huge statements that will undoubtedly get made about the economy, about the world etc uh, during that, um, that period and I expect that that will have an impact on a lot of um, level of uncertainty uh, and the economic output. For, for the next year. But for deals, if we bring it round to that, actually, the funny thing about deals is, with certainty, yes, people talk about investment uh, and a more positive way uh, to for, for growth, but actually with this uncertainty, there is also huge opportunities uh, within the deal-doing community mm. because there are a lot of good assets out there um, that are probably undervalued. And during this period of uncertainty will probably continue to be undervalued and that leads to opportunities. So one of the big trends we would see in that respect is uh, more probably listed UK listed companies in particular being taken private 
probably by the private equity community. We've seen a number of them in 2019, and I really expect that to continue in 2020. And I think, again, this is around the breakup. So it's more around the sum of the parts rather than the more traditional take private, have a restructure and then spin out. I think we look at a lot of these positions and it's helping the corporates reposition themselves behind closed doors and get back to what their core is and make those non-core divestments or indeed just an actual series of significant breakups. So I look for an example of last year, uh, a really great template for this is GKN and what Melrose have stated that they want to do with that. In terms of uh, economic slowdown, uh, what actually is also that means is that corporates, what means for the big corporates, as they tend to focus on their core businesses, what they are really good at. So again, we will see a continuation of divestments of business that no core for them. So they have more money to invest on the business that actually core. So I think, again, we will see a flurry of carve-outs coming out for the big corporates in consumer, in pharma, in industrials, in automotive. And again, with the potential buyers being the private equities, as they have, most of them have raised new funds this year, so they come in full of cash for next year and will be looking for good deals to be done in a harder economic uh, moment. One thing that I did note was that they increased the amount of money that companies can transfer into a buffer fund that is designed specifically to assist financial institutions during difficult times. So even though the overarching message was, you know, our banking sector, the UK banking sector is strong, there was also this undercurrent of preparing for the, the, uh, a potential worst possibility. From an investment point of view, clearly this is tying up more and more capital, which then restricts some of the opportunity for growth and to drive themselves out of recession. So I think it's a very careful balance that you need to have between too much capital in the buffer versus actually deploying your capital for growth. And the thing we cannot forget also is the pound is still low compared to levels that have had in previous years, which means there is still a lot of UK assets that will be eyed by foreign companies because the, 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 for, uh, the foreign exchange still makes it possible. Uh, and, uh, and a little bit more political stability will help that, that, that will give them confidence. So again, we expect a few mega mergers or mega takeovers to, to happen in the next 12 months. But that will also be kind of multiplied by the combination of restructuring and technology. So it's kind of this perfect storm with those two things. So what are your predictions in terms of of companies restructuring um, and, I suppose, job cuts? Yeah, I think there has to be some restructuring. And I, I think we see that restructuring in part driving some of the M&A mm-hmm. in terms of this disposal of non-core is companies selling parts of their business. So not the divisions, but, say, um, particular brands or particular products in a geographical market or a particular customer type segment And they are much more complex, but that's the situation that companies are in now. I think a lot of the easier tidying up of getting rid of, say, a non-core division or non-core subsidiary have been done. So now these are much more difficult restructurings, much more difficult disposals to make. But I think that is very much will be the theme of 2020. Um, 
in terms of the technology, I mean, the people we talk to, you see deals again as a real opportunity to implement this change and, and deconstruct some of the processes and methodologies and bring technology in. Because we've seen it time and time again and spoken about digital transformation, very difficult to do in a static business. The deal is giving people the opportunity to make those changes. And so to redesign supply chain, manufacture, whatever it is, uh, to bring in that, that digital capability and that technology. So again, I think that's, a, that's very interesting. And from our point of view, when we're looking at either you know, helping people buy or sell these companies, that is a massive part of the conversation around what that future state, what that future operating model needs to be in order to support the future business model and the future business plan. And if that doesn't have technology and, and, and digital in there, then, then, then that's not, you're missing a massive trick and you've probably not got the right plan. And we also see private equities, a few of them where one of their main strategies is to buy traditional businesses and attack enable them. So completely transform them. Uh, as we move into a more interesting type of world where you can just not buy a business and you know cut costs and expect it to be a better business because that doesn't work anymore. You have to actually transform them. So I think the private equities are much more on that mindset, how I actually transform those business. And the most obvious transformation is the technological one. Is there going to be a big shift to, away from fundraising and, and into deal making? With our deal list and which deals, interesting deals we think are coming in 2020, and they always start the phrase by saying, we just finished raising a new fund. <laughs> uh, so I think they did spend a lot of the year raising those funds. So the money is there. So I think they will be shifting into how to actually spend this money in, in interesting deals. And again, going back to the economic slowdown, that brings them really interesting opportunities mm -hmm. to buy companies. I think their worry currently uh, is more related to the multiples. The multiples are a bit crazy at the moment. So how do you find the right deals where the multiples are right mm -hmm. instead of just going on a huge bidding competition for price? So I think lots of them are spending a lot of time um, thinking about it. For example, in Pharma, where there has been a number of large deals uh, and the multiples have been very high. And I think the expectation there has, has been set probably too high and we know of a number of processes auctions that have actually fallen over because the pricing was the expectation gap was just too big to bridge so i think there needs to be a bit of a correction in, in particular sectors for that and then i think the volumes will return area I'd be really interested in talking to you about is climate change. And the private equity, again, a little ahead of the curve, I think, on, on some of this and taking on people with particular ESG experience. We've had a, a conversation with a number of them. And the interesting point about this is they see it as another lever for a commercial benefit to the business. So they are absolutely coming from this, not from the sort of ethical or moral position mm -hmm. but we're from a commercial 
position and a business position because they know that that is the only way it's going to actually land in a business. But once you start thinking about the ESG agenda in that very commercial way, it does lead you to lots of different opportunities within a business that I don't think people would have thought of before. I believe that uh, in the next five years, sustainability will be a great driver of deals. Uh, Lots of deals will be done for sustainability reasons. So I think they will generate a whole new formation of different companies that you never expected to come together, coming together Mm. either for sustainability, climate change impact, but also for inequality, trying to fight inequality. So I think those are themes that we can see it coming up there in the beginning in terms of deals and, and how they come through. Um, the commercial side is showing up, as, as Maggie mentioned, but we see those as huge drivers going forward. Uh, and it will be really interesting how do they play out uh, on deal making in the next few years. The next section I really want to talk about was diversity. I think that there will be more companies announcing these policies within this space. However, it will remain a very contentious um, and difficult and topical debate within within business because um, there's still so much to do. We keep repeating ourselves on this, so we're starting to become boring <laughs> on what we're talking about because we think the issue of diversity is being tackling the tackled in the wrong way because it's about inclusion trying to get numbers of women in or minorities or whoever in without tackling the inclusion side doesn't solve the problem it solves it in a very short term manner but it doesn't actually solve the problem if it doesn't if you don't make inclusive if you don't make it flexible if people don't make they feel like they fit in there is no point then. And it's the same thing on the gender pay gap. We think it's extremely important, the reports. Uh, we follow them uh, very closely. But at the same time, we don't find that the right solutions are there because people are trying to target numbers, quotas, and actually not solving the problem. The problem will be solved when the distribution of power between men and women is more equal. So you have enough women with real power in the boards, in the ex-co's, that makes a difference. Having a 50-50% board where the women have no power, for me, senseless, that's not the question here. So I think that we'll have to have an evolution in terms of how you're actually solving it instead of just giving out numbers, uh, which in the end don't actually move the conversation. Now we do have numbers, and it's a really good indicator for me of where a company's culture sits and to Rena's point that culture of inclusion mm. but trying to focus on the maths trying to fix our pay gap which I hear often means how do I get my numbers right and we've seen where that leads to incredibly poor recruiting decisions incredibly poor promotion decisions and actually undermines uh, the entire sort of fairness and transparency of promotions or recruitment uh, and so it's actually very disrupt, uh, dis- disruptive and destructive um, so this focus on the numbers is the wrong way to go 
in all things. And as Ina said, it's more a focus on what is your real cultural issues? Why isn't there inclusion? Why isn't there, even if you've got 50-50 on your board, have you really thought where does the power sit within that? What board positions are the women uh, or the minorities taking versus the existing cohort? Uh, and what power is really being given to them? And I think the conversation for me on, on gender equality, for example, needs to move on to that more slightly more challenging position rather than, than talking about the numbers. So our hopes and aspirations for 2020. Uh, from our business point of view, for us, it's all about growth um, as quick as we can, uh, establishing our UK team, growing it quickly, um, starting our global expansion into the US, into the Middle East, into Europe. Um, also, we're doing second round funding at the moment so it's really exciting yeah. <laughs> uh, so any investors listening to our podcast <laughs> will be interested in a conversation uh, again the, fun the funding is to expand uh, our global um, footprint the market received us really positively so we'll, we'll definitely the market was ready for us so we'll definitely continue pushing on yeah I mean 2020 for me is going to be I hope one of the best years we've ever had I mean, 2019 was one of the most disruptive years I've ever had, personally. Um, if you asked me this time last year what I would be doing in a year, I would never have guessed this, um, and not in a million years. Um, so I'm really looking forward to 2020 being a super fun year of uh, growing the team. We've got some really great people in, and it's already just so much more fun. From my point of view, uh, where I see the media and news next year, I think we're we're at a very interesting time where fake news is threatening the very fabric of society. I think that's quite, a, quite an extreme statement, but it is. And 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 journalism and and good journalism and yeah, a high standard of journalism has never been more important in this time. So actually, finding institutions and media groups that are going to represent the truth and what is happening has never been more important because I, we're in a time when anyone can be a journalist almost or they feel like they can be they can pick up their phone they can tweet they can they can take pictures they can be there and and share their opinions but there's very there's a, a difference between someone's opinions and actually what has happened and trying to filter through that um, and make sense of it all is is a very fun job um, so I suppose that would be what I would like to to see media do more of and I feel like it is happening but it's also there's a lot of threats as well. Thanks Emily for joining us here today uh, we really enjoyed our conversation thank you very much. You're welcome.